If you have your Bible this morning as we celebrate Palm Sunday, you can begin opening to the Gospel of Luke this morning. And uh, we're going to head to chapter 19, and we're going to read together verses 28 through 44 in just a moment. Luke chapter 19, beginning verse 28 here in just a moment. Kent Hughes writes a commentary on the book of Luke, and he shared an interesting story that struck me this week, a story that dates all the way back to 1977. Uh, In 1977, that was the year of the great coronation day of his imperial majesty, Bokassa I of the Central African Empire. Anybody ever heard of this fella? Me neither, but you will now. Bokassa I, his coronation cost a cool $25 million, uh, which was a third of the country's budget for that year. Uh, His procession began with eight of his 29 official children parading down the red carpet, followed by his son Bokassa II, dressed in a white admiral's uniform and seated on a red pillow. To the left of the throne was Catherine, his favorite of nine wives, uh, who was wearing a $73,000 Parisian gown. The emperor-to-be arrived in a coach trimmed with golden eagles and drawn by six horses as the band played a new march written just for Bokassa I. His highness wore a robe weighing in at 32 pounds, decorated with 785,000 pearls. And on his head, he wore a golden crown of laurel wreaths like the Roman consuls had worn, symbolizing that they had favor with the gods. And then he seated himself on his $2.5 million eagle throne. He took off his gold laurel wreaths, and he did just like Napoleon had done 173 years earlier, Bokassa placed upon his own head his new $2.5 million crown, topped with a humble, understated 80-carat diamond. Uh, Bokassa's reign was both very short and very terrible. Uh, Two years after his great procession and coronation, a successful coup overthrew his oppressive reign as emperor. Uh, It came too late, though, for many of his victims, among them 200 children who had been executed because they complained about the expensiveness of their school uniforms. So goes the kings of this world. Absolute power, we have learned, corrupts absolutely, so says Lord Acton. And uh, these people's claims of a thousand-year rule or, or reign, whatever it may be, always end in failure and death and destruction of their people, but not so King Jesus. All four of the Gospels record this morning's story known as the triumphal entry, that moment on Palm Sunday when Jesus the King arrives into his city, Jerusalem, leading up to the Jewish celebration of Passover that would be happening that very week. Jesus the King came to serve and to save. He also came to rule and to reign And this gives us a snapshot of what we experience now as we come to Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 44. Hear now the word of the Lord, our King, as he arrives. And when he had said these things, that is Jesus, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. 
So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them, and as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray together and ask God's blessing over his word. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we humble ourselves before you and your word. We are thankful that in your word is contained grace and truth for life. Father, thank you that you sent your son to do for us what we could never do ourselves and it is with gratefulness and joy in our hearts that we come to your word this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Three ways here from this text that we see King Jesus as he arrives into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Three ways. The first is this. What we see of Jesus is that he is the servant king, the servant king. We see this most particularly in verses 28 through 34 here at the beginning of the passage. Notice that Jesus is in control. Jesus has purposefully, sovereignly made his way through Israel and surrounding areas over the last three years of his earthly ministry And now he enters into Jerusalem intentionally, right on his timing, in preparation for what will be his last Passover here on earth, and in preparation for what will be his crucifixion on Good Friday. Even though his conspirators have not even made their plans yet, Jesus has made his plan, and it is a plan that was begun before the foundations of the world, Scripture says. This is the covenant of redemption in action. That is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit agreed before the foundations of the world that Jesus would come and save his people. He's not reacting. He is not building a plan B. He's not going, man, I never saw Adam and Eve sinning. He has a purpose and a plan to rescue his people. The Messiah, long foretold in the Old Testament, would come and would sacrifice himself to save his people. And now here is Jesus. And on his way to this moment, what has he already done even just recently? Well, he has raised his friend Lazarus from the dead while in Bethany. And Lazarus' sister Mary has just anointed Jesus with costly alabaster ointment, which Jesus himself says was to anoint him and prepare him for his own burial. This is Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the humble servant Messiah and yet a king. Jesus sends two disciples to go and locate this donkey colt that had never been ridden. 
The disciples, I'm sure, didn't fully understand what was taking place, but Jesus knew that there was just the right cult already there. He did this because 500 years earlier, the prophet Zechariah promised that this is the way that the Messiah King would arrive. Again, here, Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Matthew chapter 21, that is telling us the exact same triumphal story, adds this sentence referring to Zechariah 9.9, now Jesus' actions. It says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. This is the humility of Christ. He is the king of the universe, and yet he comes into his own city riding somebody else's colt, not lavishly, not extravagantly, not in a self-serving way, but in a servant way. If you think over the three years of Jesus' earthly ministry, never once did he promote himself in some sort of a public demonstration. Never once does he sell tickets to some sort of an event. Never once does he run a commercial. In fact, he does quite the opposite. We're told in the Bible that frequently he would withdraw to get away and be alone and pray to his heavenly father. But now this one moment, he is allowing people to recognize who he is more fully as king and as Messiah. And yet he comes as a servant. He comes as a life giver. He comes as a hope bringer. He comes as a rescuer, one who is willing to die to save his people. Jesus says this in Mark chapter 10, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul talking about Jesus in Philippians chapter two says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, Jesus has given you this example who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or or held onto, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus left the throne room of heaven to be with you, to save you, to rescue you. He set aside his kingship to become low so that you with him could be raised up. He didn't wear pearls. He had no royal robe. He had not a dollar to his name in this moment. He rides in on a borrowed colt coming to die for his people because Jesus is the humble servant, Messiah King, and he came to save you. Number two, we see a triumphant king. Jesus is the triumphant king. And we see this most particularly in verses 35 through 40 of Luke 19 this morning. Jesus arrives not only as a servant king, but as a triumphant king. In riding this same colt, he he is specifically associating himself with the reign of King David, the most important king to that point in all of their history. Verse 35 and verse 36 go on to say that people began to to spread their cloaks, their outer garments, and lay them on the colt for Jesus to ride on the colt. But then they, they go further and they put them on the ground in front of Jesus and in front of Jesus' path. This is not the first time this had happened. In 2 Kings chapter 9, we are told the same thing happens when Israel does this to honor King Jehu. 
the action here is one of, of this. As they took off their garment and they threw it on the ground in front of Jesus, what they're saying very much is, Lord Jesus, everything that I have is yours. I'm submitting myself to you as king and whatever I have, I joyfully lay it down to follow you. And we're told that not just the 12 disciples, but, but the whole of the disciples, that is, we don't know how many hundreds or maybe even thousands of people who believed in Jesus were there praising Jesus as God for his mighty works that they had seen. They were eyewitnesses to all that Jesus had done. They would have been saying things like, you are a good and faithful God. You're a miracle worker. You're a truth speaker. You're a God of mercy and of hope and of justice and of life. And they know their Old Testament Bible. And so they quote, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is from the Hallelujah Psalm. Specifically, they're quoting Psalm chapter 118 and verse 26. And this was a Psalm that was quoted at the end of Passover feast and also the Feast of Booths in the Old Testament. But here, this crowd sort of updates the lyrics. Instead of singing, blessed is he, they sing, blessed is the king. Blessed is the king. And then they cry out, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So Jesus is the only king who can bring peace in heaven and bring it down to earth. He's the only one who can take God's glory and bring it down to us and invite us to join with him and experience that glory. See, any sort of real and lasting peace on earth must be a true peace that comes only from the peace of heaven. Not just the peace of God, but peace with God. Romans chapter five and verse 10 reminds us that we as sinners outside of Christ, that our position is one of being at war with God. At war with God because of our sin, our rebellious hearts, and that when Jesus comes, he makes peace between us and God by solving the problem of our sins. He experiences the justice for our sin that we deserve. And so here yet again, they cry out, peace and glory. This is not the first time that we've heard these words associated with Jesus, though, is it? The same words here, Palm Sunday, are the very words that the angels cried out the night of Jesus' birth. They're the same words that even today in heaven, those gathered around the throne declare peace and glory and are the same words that we here on earth gather and we praise Jesus for his peace and his glory. The angels said it this way in Luke chapter two, verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Then in the account of, of this same Palm Sunday moment in the, the book of John, chapter 12 and verse 13, it says that the crowds waved palm branches and they cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Hosanna, we sang it this morning, we'll sing it again. Hosanna literally means save us. It is a cry out to Jesus directly, Jesus save us. And there were some in this crowd in that moment that understood what Jesus had said, what the word had taught them, that, that Jesus was and is God, that Jesus was the long-awaited and promised Messiah and that he had come to save them from their sins. But in that same crowd were many who did not listen to what Jesus said about himself and what the scripture declared about him. 
and who misunderstood or manipulated and twisted who Jesus was and turned him into a different kind of savior. What they were looking for was someone who would save them simply from Rome. And they had missed the point. The Gospel Transformation Study Bible of this says this, Jesus didn't come into Jerusalem as a political, economic, or social advocate for Israel. He came to establish a kingdom reign over all nations including Israel and Rome, a reign of grace in the hearts of his followers and a reign of peace over all that he has made. But then there was another group who was in the crowd there, and this group refused to acknowledge who Jesus is. In verse 39, it says, the Pharisees say to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. In other words, tell them to be quiet. It's not because they didn't like the particular tune of the octave that they were singing in that day. The Pharisees rejected what was going on, and they told Jesus, Jesus, make them be quiet because they were worshiping Jesus as God, and that they refused to acknowledge. Jesus is not king, he's not the Messiah, and he's not God. But you notice, Jesus did not tell them, stop worshiping me. He gives them a very different response, doesn't he? Guys, if they don't praise then the rocks themselves will cry out and praise me as Lord and as Savior. That to me, as I think about that, is incredibly humbling to us and incredibly encouraging. Jesus will be praised because he is God. He doesn't need me. I am dispensable. He doesn't need me. He loves me. He invites me into his family he wants me, and he has given me the ability to be a part of praising his name and experiencing his glory. And so the question for all of us, absolutely, out of just this little scene itself, is who do you worship? Who do you worship, or what do you worship? Every single person worships something or somebody. The, the object of your worship, how is it going? Is it delivering on the promises that it has, has made? There are many things that our culture and our world and our own hearts tend to worship, and the reality is, is when we get into it deeper and deeper, we find out that thing that we put our hope and trust in cannot deliver what it promised. There is only one. If you've not put your hope and your trust in Jesus and given him your worship today, let it be today. Jesus is the triumphant king one who brings peace to his people rather than destruction. Oh yeah, and this one other thing. The tomb is empty. He's the triumphant king. We can go there right now. We can check it out. It's empty. It's been empty. He borrowed it for three days. He is alive. He is a triumphant king. He was a servant king who came to die for his people and he is a triumphant king who rose from the dead three days later. He's not a martyr. He's not a dead king. He's not a part of history. He's alive and ruling and reigning today and we look forward to his return one day. Amen. Third and finally, Jesus is the tearful king. He's the tearful king. We see this in verses 41 through 44. I'll reread us uh, 41 and 42 right now. And when he drew near and saw the city, the city of Jerusalem, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day that 
the, the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. The climax of this story is not in the pomp and circumstance. The climax of the story here is in Jesus weeping over the hard-heartedness and the coming judgment of his people, Israel, who by and large rejected him. Shortest verse in all the Bible talks about this same idea. John chapter 11, verse 35. Anybody know it? Jesus wept. Yes. Two words. Could preach a whole sermon on Jesus wept. Jesus feels emotion. We know this because in that moment, Jesus wept. The scene is Jesus weeping at the death of his friend, Lazarus. B.B. Uh, Warfield, the great Presbyterian theologian of the late 1800s, took it upon himself to write a little pamphlet uh, that he entitled, The Emotional Life of Our Lord. You ever thought about that? The, the, the humanity side of Jesus, the emotional life of our Lord. And basically his task was to go through every passage that mentions Jesus having emotion and sort of see what do we, what do we see of Jesus. And what he discovered is there's a whole lot of passages that describe Jesus' emotions. We see him show anger, holy and righteous anger. We certainly see him show compassion over a variety of people at various moments, the children, the blind, the lame, the hungry. He, he has compassion on them. His heart is moved. But we also see grief. We see sadness on the part of Jesus. Jesus, like you and I do, experienced heartache at loss. When he lost his friend Lazarus, he was filled with emotion. Uh, not just that he had tears or that he cried, though. In John 11, what we see is Jesus was enraged at death. His emotion towards seeing his friend die was one of enragement, no sin in it, but a holy, hot, white, righteous anger, knowing that there was a problem that had to be solved, sin and death, and he was the only one who could do something about it. And he didn't just sit and stew, he did something about it. Jesus is a king who weeps over his people. That means Jesus cares about you. And yet Jesus is a king who didn't just stand back and let it happen. Jesus is the one and only who stepped in and did something about it, which means he has the power to change and save the world. Jesus also promises judgment. He weeps over the city because he says the things that make for peace had been hidden from them. They were blind, not physically, but spiritually blind. Their hearts were hardened by God's sovereignty and by their own sinful hearts. This, the very city whose name translates peace, Jerusalem, Jeru Shalom, the very city whose name is peace had rejected the very one that God had sent to bring them peace, the God-man, Jesus Christ. One chapter earlier, look at Luke chapter 18 with me, these incredibly important words of Jesus. Verses 32 through 34 of Luke 18, Jesus gives one of many prophecies here. He says this in verse 32, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood 
none of these things. This saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. Here in Luke 19, Jesus is predicting the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple, which took place 37 years later, after the moment that he promises it. In 70 AD, Titus comes through and obliterates Jerusalem. But it is also a much greater reference and warning of judgment for all of humanity that outside of Christ, we stand deserving his judgment before a holy and a righteous God. And so the question that this entire passage, again, demands of us is how will you respond to Jesus? Oh, Lord, open my eyes. Oh, Lord, soften my heart. Oh, Lord, change my life. Again, many of those who shouted Hosanna on Sunday would shout crucify him on Friday. But some believed. Some praised him. Some gave their lives to follow him. Why? Because the king left his throne. The king exchanged it not for a two and a half million dollar crown, but for a crown of thorns. He exchanged the praise of angels for the the mocking of rebellious fools, rebellious sinners like me and you. He didn't put on a royal robe with 785,000 pearls on it. He put on a robe of our sin. And he willingly went to the cross, dying and taking the punishment for my sins and our sins and making a way that you and I can be included in that promise. All you have to do is believe. It's a free gift from Jesus. He does all of the work and you receive all of the benefit. And yet even in that moment, this passage reminds us to give him everything. Give him your shame and your guilt and the secret sins that nobody knows about. Cast them over to him, but give him at the same time your life and come before him and say, Jesus, everything that I have, my plans, my agenda, my schedule, my goals, desires, and dreams, all of it I give to you. I want you to be Lord and King of my life, not me anymore. Christ's return will bring salvation or it will bring judgment. There is no third way. Because the Messiah servant king came to die for you is also the triumphant king who will be raised from the dead three days later. And he is also the tearful king who cares about you. Let's take a moment and let's pray together to this very king.